Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. If you, dear European leaders, dear world leaders, leaders of the free world, do not help us today, then tomorrow the war will knock on your door. The Ukrainian president, Vladimir Zelensky, had a stark warning for the West as Russian forces attacked his country. America and its allies say they are helping with sanctions, tough words and some military aid. But Joe Biden has made it clear he will not send Americans to fight in Ukraine. I'm John Prido. This is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Today, what can America do now to help Ukraine? There's war in Europe. America has spent the past decade trying to pivot its geopolitical attention to Asia away from its old allies in the West. But the crisis, and now conflict in Ukraine, has pulled it back in, showing how reliant Europe still is on the support of its friend across the Atlantic. How far will America go in standing up to Russian aggression. With me to discuss this are Idris Kaloun, The Economist's Washington correspondent, and Charlotte Howard, the New York bureau chief. Idris, I think we'll skip the usual hellos. You know, this is a fast-changing situation. Can you give the context what's happening militarily at the moment so people know what we know as we have this discussion? Yeah, so we're recording this on Friday morning, London time. Before I stepped in the studio, I saw a bulletin on the news that said, that Russian forces were in Kiev. That seems to be the latest. Uh, there have been strikes all across the country in major urban centers. There has been fighting basically throughout uh, Russia executed basically a pincer movement from the north, the east, and the south. And they've occupied some degree of territory, including uh, the Chernobyl nuclear power plant. Zelensky is in hiding somewhere he maintains in Kiev and Ukraine, and he insists that the Russians are coming for him and are and are trying to assassinate him effectively. Yes, and we've seen missile strikes that have hit apartment buildings. It's clear that civilians have been killed, more will be killed. Charlotte, have you got anything to add to what Idris has already laid out? I think like everyone who has been watching this, the reaction is one, not necessarily of surprise because Vladimir Putin had been amassing forces along the border and American officials had been warning that this was going to happen for some days, but it is still a stunning and absolutely stunning display. And to Idris's point, the extent of his intentions in Ukraine are slowly becoming clear, and the result is devastating for Ukrainians and a real shock to the whole world. That's right. And our thoughts are, of course, with Ukrainians at the moment. I was looking at the data and a few thousand people downloaded the podcast in Ukraine last week. There is obviously incredible bravery being displayed by Ukrainians at at the moment, and we hope they can hold out for a long time. We're not going to be covering the breaking news in this podcast. We're going to stand back and try and make sense of of what this all means and, and particularly focus on America's policy moves next. But if the breaking news is what you want, please do go to economist.com where we have 
colleagues writing around the clock. The Intelligence, our daily podcast, also covers the latest news. Um, we have two colleagues in Kiev at the moment who are still working and, and sending back reports from there. Okay, I thought that a good person to begin making sense of all of this was John Seifer, who worked for the CIA clandestine services for nearly three decades, including in Russia. And when I spoke to him, I began by asking him how he reacted when it became clear that Russia was invading Ukraine. Well, even though, you know, I spent a lot of time, you know, working in our intelligence service and working in Russia and on Russian issues, we still tend to think in our sort of Western way of thinking. And so it seemed, at least to me, that as as much as Vladimir Putin continued to say these things and continued to push forward and all indications were, were negative, it's very easy to t- convince yourself like this is crazy. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make long term sense. Invading a country has incredible unintended consequences. So the rational person says, you know, if he can get you know partially his way by, by threatening and bullying and bluster, which is what he's done often over the last 20 years, that you know, he would back off and then he would push again in the future. This game can be played forever. He pushes, he creates a false crisis and we come to him and offer him something. So I was, you know, even though it doesn't make sense, even though he said it, I was surprised when he finally chose to go in because it seems that there's so many bad options uh, to be had. But that said, it's not surprising. I mean, he's been saying this thing for a long time. In your former life as a CIA intelligence official, you will have spent a lot of time presenting scenarios about what might happen next. This is a hard thing to do. But can you give us a sense of what the possible range of scenarios are from from here? And and if you want to be even bolder in terms of prediction, which of those you think seems more likely? That's a tough one. What makes this actually tougher in this case is later where Putin is a career KGB officer. He calls himself a proud Czechist, which was the name, Cheka was the name of the Bolshevik Security and Intelligence Service. So he grew up in this game of disinformation, misinformation, sabotage, subversion, deception. And to this day, you know, that's sort of the primary way of Russian foreign policy. And even as we see a military advancing into Ukraine, the military part and the intelligence deception part are, are one and the same in Russian doctrine. And along with troops, are cyber attacks, disinformation, sabotage, destabilizing governments, all those kind of things. So Putin takes great pride in trying to send false signals, send false information, make us unsure of what he's trying to do to sort of keep the West or keep others you know, off balance. And so predicting what's going to happen is doubly hard with, with Vladimir Putin. But the one thing I can say with some confidence is we are going to see the intelligence for lack of a better word, the covert side of this playing a key role here. So there's some goals that he wants to have. Obviously, he wants to suppress and take over Ukraine. He wants to have a Ukrainian government that's essentially completely supportive of of Russia. But he also wants to influence the West. He wants to try to create fissures and weakness and divisions in the West. It's something he's been doing for quite a long time. One of the things that I, I tend to think here is the way he truly can win is by weakening the U.S. political system so much so that you get another Donald Trump. You get Donald Trump or you get a Donald Trump lookalike in the White House. And if that's the case, he does truly win because the U.S. then pulls out of Europe. People in, in this country now are actually supportive of Vladimir Putin. And to me, it's it's crazy and it's awful. But if Vladimir Putin has that effect of you know, weakening the U.S. political 
infrastructure so much that the American public sees higher prices and blames the Biden administration, you know, that's a real victory for him. This invasion was predicted by the CIA pretty publicly in a much more public way than we've seen before. American officials have been making use of intelligence assessments. And not only was it predicted, the timetable was was pretty precise, right? The idea that it would be after the Beijing Olympics had, had wrapped up, um, but before the spring comes. Why do you think the intelligence has been so accurate in this case? Is it because, as you say, Putin told us what he was going to do, and because we're able to see from satellite imagery the buildup of you know, vast buildup of troops on Ukraine's border and in Belarus? Or is there some extra sort of additional stuff in there? Because the level of specificity about some of those intelligence predictions is really striking. As this crisis enveloped the White House and the administration and our NATO allies, we came at it with quite a weak hand. So, you know, the United States had just gotten out of pulling out of Afghanistan and doing so in a very clumsy and, and unfortunate way, which expressed weakness to people like Russia and China. Our internal politics were are, are frayed and tribal, and we had misplayed Putin for years. So he's seen a pattern here of taking you know aggressive and irresponsible actions and getting away with it, no sort of cost. And so by the time this crisis came up, we didn't have a lot of tools to play with. You know, traditional deterrence was, was tough to come by. Talking about sanctions or something that really doesn't affect Vladimir Putin. The administration came in with a weak hand and then tried to do everything they could to throw everything against the wall to try to deter Putin. So we tried to work with allies. We tried to provide weaponry to Ukraine. We tried to increase U.S. and and financial and U.S. troops to NATO. Um, We tried to be more specific and push harder on on sanctions. And one of the things that's new, that get back to your question, is using intelligence in a public way. So usually, you know, in our world, it's secret intelligence. You provide assessments to an administration so they can make good policy. But what you've seen here is a little bit of a page out of Putin's playbook. It's using, you know, for lack of a better word, the Russian term, information warfare. It's taking the information you have and using it for political purposes. What's interesting about this is we've we've declassified and used intelligence to try to influence one actor, Vladimir Putin, to push back against Putin, to try to get inside Putin's decision-making cycle, to make him have to recalculate or think or wonder what else does the U.S., what else does the West have? You know, maybe I have to change what I'm doing. I think the U.S. and, and our NATO allies, we're, we're trying to do everything that we could to influence them. And so they added this new piece that we haven't really done before. Charlotte, on the one hand, America's policy here has been a failure. Vladimir Putin hasn't been deterred. Ukraine has been invaded. And let's hope not, but there's a possibility that Kiev does fall. So there are a lot of people looking at America's policy towards Russia over the past decades and decisions that were made, you know, whether it was right to expand NATO eastwards, whether Ukraine should have joined NATO whether there should have been more assistance given earlier to Ukraine, whether it was right to you know, move the embassy out of Kiev, all these questions about American policy decisions. Do you think that if America, whether that means you know, Joe Biden's White House or previous ones had acted differently, the outcome might be different? Or do you think actually Vladimir Putin was going to do what he was going to do and the policy debates that have been going on in American circles to some extent are marginal. 
I think that's a very fascinating question and one which will undoubtedly be debated for a long time, including in the midterms and in the next presidential election. And it's one that's blatantly impossible to answer, right? Because that question, like the wonderings that we've all had about Vladimir Putin's intentions over the past month and longer, come down to trying to read Putin's mind, which is, of course, impossible. I'm particularly interested in the sanction strategy that the Biden administration pursued. So the first set of sanctions that were announced were relatively modest. And I think it's fair to say that that's something that people have criticized him for. But I I think it is objectively true that they weren't that extensive. So America targeted two Russian banks, one of which had already been targeted by measures from 2014 during the annexation of Crimea. There were sanctions levied against some elites with ties to the Kremlin, some purchases of Russian sovereign debt. But it wasn't the type of sweeping, unprecedented sanctions that some expected. And you had Bob Menendez, who is the chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee of New Jersey, talking about having a Munich moment, which was the agreement in 1938 that let Nazis take part of Czechoslovakia. So it was kind of cast in these really harsh terms. And now you have the Biden administration, as well as allies, in Europe, outlining a broader set of sanctions that includes those on Spare Bank, which is a huge Russian bank that has more than a trillion dollars in assets, export controls um, to limit Russia's access to high tech. But the question is whether those types of sanctions should have been done earlier, whether they would have really had an impact on Putin. I'm not sure, as I indicated. I think my best guess if I were to try to read his mind, like so many millions of people are trying to do, is that this is something that he intended that he was going to do no matter what. Russia's in a really good position financially at the moment. And so he felt like it was a moment when he could be more aggressive and weather the Western response. Idris, uh, do you agree with that? I mean, America's tried lots of different policies towards Vladimir Putin. George W. Bush tried to have a close relationship and then saw that was a mistake. Under Barack Obama, there was the reset and then that didn't work. Donald Trump, in his own strange way, changed America's relationship with Russia in some ways. Joe Biden's reverted to more kind of conventional American position on this. Do you think if US policy had been different in some way, we might not see this outcome? or, Or do you think that actually there are other introspective debates that Americans are having about U.S. policy are slightly beside the point. Yeah, I don't think that American policy would have changed his his mind. Clearly, this invasion had been planned for many months. And I think actually the roots of it go many years before that as well. If you have listened to, to Vladimir Putin, he has said that the dissolution of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century, a century that had many other arguably much worse catastrophes. And, you know, even months ago, he wrote this rather odd historical essay on the historical unity of Ukrainians and Russians, arguing essentially that the two were one people. His speech that was panned, that was given on Monday, justifying this, had a lot of historical detours. But a lot of Russian experts seem to think that he actually wrote it himself, that, you know, this angry invective and this idea that Ukraine was a basically a gift bestowed upon upon an undeserving people by Lenin, and that uh, Stalin basically had the right idea in centralizing control, and that the USSR had lost its way because of feckless leadership. That, I think, has been something that he has thought for a long time. 
And I think that he also, he is getting older. He's nearly 70 now. He clearly wants to put himself in the pantheon of great Slavic leaders like Nevsky and Lenin and Stalin. And when he thinks about how he can do that, I think he sees Ukraine as a jewel um, in that way. So maybe harsher sanctions could have deterred him for a little bit longer, but I ultimately don't think that he, he might have changed his mind. And how about how what's happened has been processed by the American political system and particularly by Congress and by people allied with both of the two big political parties? I mean, it seems to me among Democrats, they pretty much lined up behind Joe Biden on his views of this. There have been some very fringe left arguments that have said, well, maybe the West should have committed and said Ukraine's not going to join NATO and maybe, you know, maybe the fault here is ours. But I think that's a very fringe position on the left. On the right, I think it's striking that most Republicans, at least Republicans in Congress, seem to have ditched the Trump position of friendliness towards Vladimir Putin. But it's quite striking that on the right, in parts of the media, at least, that's not the case, right? So give me your thoughts on that. There's a split among Republicans, those in Congress, although they argue that Biden has been weak and has in some way enabled Vladimir Putin to be uh, expansionist in this way, that they still think that this Ukrainian aggression is a terrible development and needs to be met with very harsh sanctions. But Donald Trump himself has taken a very different tact. If you look at some of the speeches that he's been giving um, over the last week in the interviews, I mean, he's full of praise for Putin himself. He called him very smart. He called the move a genius move to go in and um, take what he called a great piece of land for uh, $2 of sanctions. I mean, these are real things that, that he said. And so the, the parts of the Republican media ecosystem that are most closely aligned with Donald Trump have, I think, taken on that tone. And that's very different from this, you know, divide between isolationism and, and, you know, internationalism. This is, you know, outrightly kind of cheering on a strong man for being strong and, and basically not thinking about the morals any deeper than that. Charlotte, what do you think would have happened if Donald Trump had won the presidential election in 2020 rather than Joe Biden? I mean, there's a decent chance that he becomes the next president, right, and wins in 2024. But he wasn't that far away from winning in 2020. So this whole crisis, the invasion of Ukraine could have played out with Donald Trump at the helm. I think that's yet another indication of quite how much elections matter. You know, people often treat talking about politics a bit like it's kind of sport or, or something and are interested in who's up and who's down. But this stuff really, really matters. What do you think would have happened if this were all playing out under President Trump? This is another question in which <laughs> um, I'm going to speculate. But of course, I think that one key trait of Biden's response so far is that he has been pretty steady and he hasn't acted in a way that is all at all erratic. And he has been working closely with Macron, with other European leaders. He's been trying to coordinate a multilateral response. And I think both of those distinguishing factors of the Biden administration's response to Russia would, would have been lacking if Trump were president. So I don't think we can predict exactly what he would have done because his decision making is um, quite hard to track. And he never got on particularly well with other European leaders, nor did he see the value of NATO. So I think that there would be many more question marks over any conflict in Ukraine 
Would he have been more eager to deploy troops? I doubt it, because if you look at the polling, it's just so negative on both sides of the aisle. Indeed, Republicans seem more reluctant to send troops to Ukraine than even Democrats. So I don't think he would have engaged in an all-out war, but you never know. And so I think that that would have been the biggest distinguishing factor. Okay, thank you both. We'll find out about a forgotten figure in the founding of NATO in a moment. But first, if you want to read everything that we're writing about Ukraine, about Russia, about this new war, we have fantastic colleagues who are covering it, two in Kiev, as I already mentioned, but really experts all over the world who've been all over this subject, predicted this war, told us how it would play out pretty much. If you want to read their writing, then please go to economist.com, which is updated constantly. Scene 631, take one. In retirement, President Truman made a documentary about his time in office. As he turns to look at a screen on the wall behind him, a photo appears. The grey-haired man in it is slightly overweight and wears glasses, a bow tie and a pocket square. In midstream of a speech and gesticulating with his left hand, he seems unremarkable. But he clearly means something to Truman. That's Arthur Vandenberg. He was a senior senator from Michigan and one of the finest men I ever came in contact with. Although he's been somewhat forgotten now, Arthur Vandenberg was one of the most important figures of 20th century American foreign policy. After entering the Senate in 1928, he grew to become a staunch isolationist, believing World War I had been a mistake and wanting America to turn away from a Europe stained by fascism and the approaching drums of another war. As a leading member of the Republican caucus, he fiercely opposed President Roosevelt's plans to send aid and munitions to Western Europe when conflict broke out there. But then, early on a Hawaiian Sunday morning in December 1941, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. We interrupt this program to bring you a special news bulletin. The Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, by air. Messages from Tokyo say that Japan has announced a formal declaration of war against both the United States and Britain. Pearl Harbor ended isolationism for any realist, Vandenberg would later write. He voted to go to war, and then in January 1945 gave an extraordinary address to the Senate. Known as the speech heard around the world, he announced his conversion from isolationism to internationalism. Our oceans have ceased to be moats which automatically protect our ramparts, he proclaimed, and he implored his Republican colleagues to embrace bipartisanship in foreign affairs. Politics stops at the water's edge, the senator announced in the speech's most famous line. To the rest of the world, America must present a united front. Vandenberg saw collective security as a way to avoid the horrors of another world war. He helped to create the United Nations and garnered bipartisan support for the Truman Doctrine and Marshall Plan. But with the military might of the Soviet Union growing, Western Europe needed even more from America. The Allies crafted a mutual defense pact, which became the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO. Arthur Vandenberg drafted the bill approving America's involvement and ensured its easy passage through the Senate. It was called the Vandenberg Resolution. 
1949, Truman spoke at the signing of the North Atlantic Treaty. From the outset, the Soviet Union was wary of NATO. If there is anything certain today, if there is anything inevitable in the future, it is the will of the people of the world for freedom and for peace. Vandenberg was converted from isolationism to internationalism by an attack on his homeland and the reality that his country was under threat. The attack on Ukraine comes at a time when America is tired of foreign wars, when isolationism has once again become fashionable in some places. But thanks to Arthur Vandenberg, America still has a long-standing commitment to defend allies who share a border with a country that has just been invaded by Russia. Idris, it does feel that for some time we've been covering the decline of a set of institutions and principles that were built with America's help and American leadership after the end of Second World War, institutions that sustained the West for a long time. NATO is one of the few of those that remain more or less intact. Do you think that what's happening now in Ukraine marks the end of that post-Cold War era? And, And do you think... America's commitment to NATO remains firm? Because I've got to say, talking to people in Eastern Europe at the moment, that's obviously the big question on their minds. You know, they share a border with Ukraine and are wondering about whether their allies are going to support them. I think the idea that this marks the end of the post-Cold War era of peace is wrong because there actually hasn't been that that much peace um, over the last decade. It's been a low-grade erosion. And this, if anything, just puts an exclamation point on a trend that's existed for a long time. I sometimes, you know, like to go back and read the end of history as a bit of nostalgia for what could have been, you know, Fukuyama's view that uh, America would be a hegemon and this would be great for democracy worldwide was a beautiful vision, but it turned out to be quite wrong. And Russia might be a peripheral player on the geopolitical stage at the moment, but it's clearly quite a powerful one. And there is this sort of new Cold War that's emerged between America and China, both nuclear armed powers. Um, we're still in the era of, of great strategic powers competing for with one another. The idea that uh, America and the West and NATO and these institutions were ascendant and uh, would sort of steer history into the sunset, I don't think is has ever been fully right and certainly feels completely defeated at the moment. Charlotte, on that question of America's commitment to NATO and to European security and defending those treaty allies in Eastern Europe, I've no doubt that Joe Biden stands behind that, right? He is of that post-war, post-Cold War generation. But do you think that that sort of commitment to European allies and European security is fading away as memories of the Cold War and you know, memories of the Second World War become, frankly, sort of like ancient history to many Americans. I think that might have been the case, except for this invasion. I mean, if you think about the ways in which, as we've written about in our pages, the ways in which this crisis has galvanized uh, members of NATO to work together and to coordinate and also to prove the merits of having a counterweight to Russia within Europe, I think that there probably is a new generation of people who are waking up to the idea that this might be a necessary and and good thing to try to maintain. I think what we're seeing is the reestablishment of the 
old dynamic of spheres of influence that are anchored by nuclear armed powers. You know, this, it used to be the case that America had kind of free domain in Latin America. Russia felt like it had some sway over uh, the former Soviet republics, etc. But what we see now is that Russia clearly has this expansionist intent of restoring a mini-Soviet Union, at least, or a pan-Slavic sort of country. We'll see ultimately what happens. China clearly thinks that its dominion um, extends to neighboring countries as well. America and NATO are not going to probably relent. Attacking a NATO country would be a very, very different scenario. So that's an old model of, of how international relations go. It's not a particularly uplifting one. It's very might is right, and, and especially if, if that might is backed by nuclear arms. One striking thing in terms of international relations here has been the absence of any condemnation from China over Russia's invasion of Ukraine. This is a country whose guiding principle in foreign affairs usually is that countries shouldn't interfere in the affairs of other countries. And yet Xi Jinping, Chinese leadership has been, been silent about this. How does this change America's policy towards Asia? Because American foreign policy, the White House would like to be carrying out this pivot towards Asia. Uh, that seems to be the important thing in long-term strategic sense. This gets in the way of that. So how does that affect things? And also, how does the way that China is behaving affect U.S.-China relations going forward? You know, China is pretty clearly siding with Russia here, and Russia is embarking on what may well be you know, the biggest war in Europe, certainly since the Balkans War, and, and maybe since before that, maybe since 1945. And that's, that's a very big stance for, for China to take, e even if it hopes that by saying nothing, it's kind of sitting on the sidelines. I think that the relationship between America and China was already so frayed that clearly this will fray it further. But I don't think it's transforming the connection between the two countries from one type of relationship to another. I think it's just a continued deterioration. One of the things that I think is notable about this era that we seem to be entering or, or, or this this new period after Russia's invasion is that to Dries's point, it does in some ways feel like a back to the future kind of transition where you have old nuclear powers exerting their influence. But I also think that it's worth looking at the economic nature of these relationships. So if you think about Russia, Vladimir Putin has spent a long time now trying to bolster its economy to insulate it from um, damage that might be inflicted by foreign governments, trying to insulate itself from the effects of sanctions, um, trying to build up its reserves through a mixture of fiscal reforms, and now high commodity prices have really helped it. But in the use of sanctions against Russia, and also in uh, Russia's attempted economic insulation, which emboldened this invasion of Ukraine, it points to a bigger phenomenon, even if markets recover quickly. And that is that countries around the world are trying to fortify their economies from geopolitical risk or from a pandemic. Um, this is a result both of COVID, but also because of the rise of China, because China as an economic power has become so vast, um, because it has pursued industrial policy on such a big scale. You see America, you see Europe, you see Russia, South Korea, Japan, all kinds of countries pursuing industrial policies not interested in particular in the United States in expanding um, trade agreements, multilateral trade agreements that might 
become a counterweight to Russia. You see this kind of fracturing world economically that I think will be a barrier actually to America advancing its geopolitical interests. That if America wanted to be a more effective counter to Chinese might, it would be trying to have a multilateral economic response that it wouldn't just be this new age of fortress economies where everyone is trying to insulate themselves and trade deals kind of languish. I think that it would be much smarter for America to, yes, invest at home, but also pursue an economic multilateralism. But there isn't really any support for that, either among Democrats or Republicans. Okay, we'll be back in a moment to hear from a former American ambassador to the two countries that are now at war with each other. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. John Teft has been the U.S. ambassador to both Ukraine and Russia, as well as Georgia and Lithuania. We talked about what he thinks the West has got wrong about Vladimir Putin, somebody he spent some time with. The audio quality is not great, so I apologize for that. But I think what he had to say is really interesting and is worth listening to. Putin has a real strong emotional uh, chip on his shoulder, as we all know, with the end of the Soviet Union, uh, with uh, the loss of the the territory, uh, particularly Ukraine, uh, but also has a chip on his shoulder toward uh, the United States in particular, the West more broadly, and Uh, NATO. And I think it's been his goal to try to rectify that. I've also been struck, though, that, uh, you know, he has changed. You know, I can remember conversations when I was ambassador in Moscow, where he would say, you know, Crimea is ours. This is after the invasion. I was ambassador from 2014 to 2017. But, uh, you know, the Donbass, this is Ukrainian territory, sovereign Ukrainian territory. Clearly, that has changed. The other thing is the, the, are the, the speeches he's given and the speech that he gave on Monday, which uh, was described as kind of a rambling uh, historical uh, revision, uh, which uh, almost every historian, uh, even Russian historians who know anything about Ukraine, have disputed as uh, incorrect. So he's working Uh, on that basis, a very emotional and deeply felt sense of grievance more than anything else. And is he the same in private as he is in public? I mean, I suppose a meeting with an ambassador is actually a very public sort of a meeting, right? But did your encounters with him change your assessment of of him in any way? Or did they just kind of reinforce what you already thought? Putin doesn't meet or didn't meet with ambassadors when I was there, particularly after the the Crimean invasion. Uh, The times I was with him, I accompanied Secretary of State John Kerry or Secretary of State Rex Tillerson to meetings with him. I think I was there five times and I was able to observe him very closely for several hours. He's a very uh, genial guy, but he has a very hard, deep set of views. And uh, in, in, that, in that sense, what you see in private is what you see in public, particularly when he gets emotional and angry, as we saw him earlier this week. John, how about attitudes to America in, in Russia? Um, what 
were your experiences when you were there? I mean, Vladimir Putin clearly is trying to play up um, the threat from America and from the rest and from the West in Russia in what seems just like a kind of reheating of Cold War rhetoric. Is that likely to to fly uh, or, or do you think that Russia has moved beyond that? I think it's mixed. For the average Russian, uh, especially the older generation who feed on the Russian TV accounts, the, the propaganda that uh, that is broadcast in the news, that something on the order of uh, 50, 60 percent blame NATO and the U.S. for this crisis. At the same time, you know, throughout my time in Moscow, and I think it's probably still the case, you have this strong feeling of uh, kind of admiring America and, uh, and what the United States stands for. This goes back even into the Soviet period, I can remember. But you've got a lot of people who may blame the U.S. for a particular problem or say, oh, NATO is at the root of our problems. But what do you like about America? Do you like the popular culture? Absolutely. It would seem to us contradictory, but it isn't, doesn't seem that way to, to Russians. I think that the many of the people there may be having this morning some real questions about what's going on because they were sold a line that uh, that Russia had to take Donbass, the Donetsk and Lugansk oblasts, to prevent a larger war. Well, and today we have a larger war. So, Idris, as we stand, Russia still has large, very large numbers of troops that are not in Ukraine yet. So there's potential for Russia to escalate further, kill even more people. What should America do now? You know, put aside the arguments about whether the policy over the past few months and over the past decades was was right or wrong. What are, what are the options for what America might do in response and, and also other Western allies? For America, troops are off the table and they've always been off the table. What America can decide now is how steep the economic sanctions that they wish to impose are going to be. Now, they've sanctioned more banks, but there is more that they could do. They could, for example, cut the Russian banks off from the SWIFT system for making global payments, um, which would have a very severe cost for the Russians. They've already killed Nord Stream 2, along with the Germans, the big pipeline that was going to go through. And they could even do more severe sanctions, including on Vladimir Putin himself or Sergei Lavrov, the uh, foreign minister. And they could rally other Western countries to cut Russia off and isolate them. There is also, short of sending boots on the ground, military aid, potentially lethal uh, defensive weapons that they could be giving as well. One thing Idris didn't mention is any type of restriction or sanctions on Russian energy exports. And there's a pretty obvious reason for that, which is that Biden is sensitive to the knock-on effects for Europeans who are dependent on Russia. Europe imports 25% of its oil from Russia. Um, it's not that easy to swap it for oil that's delivered by tanker because you don't have quite enough infrastructure, let alone you know just the idea of where you're going to get all that oil. 
So that's certainly a possibility, but the Biden administration is very, very loath to go that route. Um, domestically, higher oil prices and higher gas prices are already going to be pushing up inflation. And you see the Biden administration kind of trying um, with limited success to lean on OPEC to try to up production. OPEC producers are, are sort of reluctant to do that. It's important to keep in mind that Saudi Arabia and Russia, which isn't formally a part of OPEC, the oil cartel, that they've been the two most important members of the broader OPEC alliance, the broader alliance of oil producing countries. So Saudi Arabia doesn't really seem keen to get in this too closely. But America's probably going to start releasing oil from its strategic petroleum reserves. But anyway, that's all to say that Biden's going to try to avoid targeting Russian energy exports for as long as possible. I have to say, I think so far, the Biden administration has done a pretty good job. I think that it's diplomacy now, I mean, there's no deterring Vladimir Putin, right? I think even if sanctions had been tougher, he would have used them as a pretext to do what he was going to do anyway. What you can do is make this as painful for him and for Russia as it possibly can be. And I think in order to do that, America has more purchase on Western allies. And so using its diplomacy, using its ability to you know, persuade, and frankly, it's kind of threats on fellow Western allies to stiffen their spines, I think is a useful thing. I also think more defensive weapons to Ukraine are a good idea at this point. I mean, America has already given military aid to Ukraine. Ukraine has Javelin missiles, which are shoulder-mounted anti-tank and anti-helicopter weapons, um, and has been training Ukrainian soldiers to use them. I think some economic help to Ukraine is going to be necessary very soon. Uh, and also, you know, frankly, it's going to be a struggle quite soon if Ukraine can hold out for, for a long time. People are going to struggle to feed themselves. And so I think all of those things, which no doubt allies are thinking of, I think that that's going to have to be sped up. If America were to give more aid to Ukraine, um, I don't think Russia would, would risk a direct confrontation with America, but they might seek retribution through some sort of cyber attack. And that's just something that I don't know how crippling it, it could be or, or how seriously America would take that sort of aggression. Yeah, I spoke to a member of the Senate Intelligence Committee earlier this week, and he was worried that a cyber attack on Ukraine, which looks quite likely, you know, would spill out into Western systems. And then essentially, you'd end up quite quickly in a cyber war with Russia, even if NATO doesn't want to end up in a, in a shooting war with Russia. Yeah, I think that there's a broader question, which is why Americans should care about this. Obviously, there's the humanitarian reason, which is the most important. Um, and then there's the collapse of uh, certain global norms with Putin invading a, a neighboring country in a way that we didn't think possible in the 21st century. For Americans at home, you can see rising energy prices, rising food prices. Russia, Ukraine combined account for a quarter of the world's wheat exports. Ukraine alone accounts for 13% of corn exports. So that's going to have an effect on inflation if there are sustained disruptions. But the cyber risk is really the big one that could have the most damage. So if you think about attacks that we know that Russians have already waged, cyber attacks that Russians have already waged, they're really sobering. So there was the solar winds attack um, in which Russian hackers 
infiltrated a US company. And basically that company sent software updates to its customers, which then um, allowed it to infiltrate other companies. So you had this effect, everyone from Microsoft to the Pentagon. This is a really big deal and showed the scope and ease with which um, Russia could really get access to some of the most important American companies and American government institutions. And then in 2015, you had Russian hackers uh, hack into Ukraine's power system and turn off the lights. And so Putin has shown um, in recent years the extent of Russia's cyber capabilities. There's, of course, the whole issue, separate issue of election um, meddling. But they have he has shown the extent of of what Russia can do. The New York Fed, the Federal Reserve in New York, did a study in 2020 that looked at what might happen if the five biggest American financial institutions were compromised through a cyber attack. And it was really quite grave knock-on effects across the financial system. So I'm not saying any of those things will happen, but they absolutely are a real risk. That's right. And in the next few days, the next few weeks, we'll be looking at and analyzing the long-term effects of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I think one thing that's worth bearing in mind here is that even though what's happening at the moment is awful for Ukraine and for Ukrainians, there's no success here for Russia. There's no real winning this in the long term. You know, Ukraine is a Western European country of 44 million people, vast territory. There's no way that Russia can occupy that slice of territory indefinitely. I absolutely hope you're right. But I'm not sure. I mean, I think that there's a chance that Putin doesn't want to have Russia permanently occupy Ukraine, but he's very interested in having a compliant government in Kiev. And I think that he wants to show that he can weather the storm, that he can test the West's resolve and still emerge unscathed or relatively unscathed. I think that is misguided for a whole variety of reasons, including that I think that the Russian people will suffer enormously as they become increasingly isolated and as Russia's economy becomes isolated. But I think for Putin, there's a chance that he walks away thinking that he did what he wanted to do. I think there's a chance of that. But I also think in the long term, a colonial approach to governing Ukraine, which is what Russia would have to undertake, won't be successful. And in the longer term, the thing that Vladimir Putin really supposedly wants to avoid, which is NATO membership for Ukraine, that looks likelier to me in a sort of 10-year view than it did a month ago. My big worry is that China will look at this all as very instructive, as it clearly has designs on Taiwan, and it will see this as an example of what the Western reaction might be. And that, to me, is discouraging for uh, several years in the future as well. Okay, well, thank you, Idris. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks also to our producer, Harriet Noble, and to our sound engineer, Nicola Rofast. John Fasman hasn't been with us this week. He's co-hosting The Intelligence. Long-term listeners will know that he's descended from Ukrainian immigrants. And so if you want to hear about what he has to say about Ukraine, please do listen to The Intelligence, our daily podcast. He'll also be back on Checks and Balance before too long. If you want to get in touch either with the intelligence or with checks and balance, the email address is podcasts at economist.com. There's a good episode of Economist Asks in the feed at the moment, which talks about some of the foreign policy and economic implications of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. We'll have more checks and balance for you next week. <laughs>